0: Based on the current literature in, in face cooling, that agrees with that, like not decreasing the, the core temperature, but decreasing the temperature around the, the brain, it has been shown to decrease the perceived exertion, to to increase the time of fatigue, to lower the levels of a uh, prolactin levels, which is a an, an hormone like stress hormone. So it has shown that it increases the the performance. Uh, once you cool a very important organ like the brain.
1: Hello, and welcome to the December 1st, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Zankoff, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Triathlon is very much an individual sport. We spend a lot of our time training alone, we certainly race alone, and while we love to share our accomplishments with all of our followers on social media, the reality is those accomplishments are very personal and likely mean more to us than they do to anyone else. Despite that, triathlon is also about relationships in ways that few other endurance sports really can claim to be. Think about your first race and how, as a newbie, you were nervous and probably overwhelmed. I'm willing to bet that you were welcomed into transition on that day and greeted warmly by many who shared some tips and words of encouragement. That's one of the things that our sport is famous for and, truthfully, one of the things that made me come back again and again. Triathlon clubs and Facebook groups also are places where positive relationships form and many of those are long-lasting. But probably the most meaningful relationships come in the form of those between a coach and their athlete. A good coach serves as a teacher, a mentor, a cheerleader, and a listener. Over time, he or she often becomes a friend also. Coaches share in their athlete's successes and setbacks, and together with their athlete, they form a bond of trust, mutual respect, and understanding that comes with a shared understanding of the hard work that is being put in to reach goals. In my 20-plus years in triathlon, I've had a couple of these kinds of relationships as an athlete and many more now in the last several years as a coach. One of those relationships that I had as an athlete recently came to an unexpected and tragic end. About eight years ago, I found myself looking for a new coach. I'd been with the same coach for more than a decade, but I felt like I needed a change in order to get to the next level, and so I began to speak to a few people and eventually settled on Steve Johnson, the owner of Dark Horse Triathlon. Steve was kind of a local legend in the Colorado triathlon community. He was crazy fast and really well-liked. I had an inkling of who he was just from seeing him on social media and occasionally getting a glimpse of him at races, but I had no idea what kind of coach he was. I was swayed after meeting him and learning of his data-driven methods and strong track record of successes with a large number of athletes, and so I soon signed on. After the first year in which I saw some pretty good results, Steve suggested I consider a return to Ironman racing, and while I wasn't super excited by the idea, he convinced me that I could do better than I thought. In 2018, I made my first podium at a 70.3, and a month later did so again at my first Ironman race in over five years, and even qualified for Kona at that time. Over the next five years, my successes continued, with annual 70.3 World Championship qualifications, increasingly frequent podiums, and eventually age group victories, and a second Kona qualification. There's no question, I owe all of my success to Steve's coaching. He made me believe that I was a significantly better athlete than I had ever thought I was, and gave me the tools to be able to succeed no matter the distance. The relationship that developed between us was very important to my success in triathlon, but also to me as a person, and I was never more aware of that than when he was first diagnosed with his illness, melanoma, a couple of years ago. As a physician, I was well aware of what his diagnosis meant, and that despite his optimism and his willingness to fight with everything that he had, He was very much on the losing end of some pretty depressing survival numbers. Still, we continued to work together, and I tried as best as I could to simply put it out of my mind that he was facing what he was facing, though occasionally, when his illness forced him to be hospitalized, reality would come crashing down on both of us. Towards the end, things seemed to be going pretty well, and Steve started to share some big plans for 2024, including renewing the Dark Horse Tri Ironman Tri Club and the idea of hosting some multi-sport camps. I know that I was not the only one of his athletes who thought that things must have been on the upswing for him. He was very private about his condition, and none of us actually knew what was going on with his illness, and honestly, none of us asked. So when he suddenly stopped communicating about two weeks ago, I admit that I didn't even think that it was related to what actually happened, that he had very precipitously deteriorated because a small tumor had begun bleeding in his brain. Things went quickly at that point and on saturday november 18th in the early morning steve passed away i'm telling you all of this in part to honor my coach but also as a reminder to cherish the relationships that you have with your own friends athletes or coaches within triathlon or anywhere else we simply don't know how much time that we have with them and we shouldn't take even one second of it for granted i'm racing in indian wells this weekend It's the last event in what has been a long and somewhat torturous season for me, and when I do, I'm going to do so in my dark horse triathlon kit one last time as a way to honor Steve Johnson and all that he did for me over the past several years. His impact on me and many others will not be forgotten. I hope that I can make him proud one last time. On the show today, in the medical mailbag, Coach Juliette Hockman and I answer a question sent to us by Andrew Patterson, the author of the excellent and informative Iron Man Hacks website and YouTube channel. He recently came across a supplement that he wanted some more insight on. Nicotinamide ribosome, or NR, is a form of vitamin B3 and a precursor of an important coenzyme involved in a lot of important biochemical processes in our bodies, including the metabolism of glucose. That coenzyme is NAD+. There's some research out there suggesting that supplementation with NR in order to build up amounts of NAD+, may be important to performance and endurance athletes, particularly as we age. So what's the truth on this? Well, we dive in deep, and that discussion is coming up shortly. Later, I have the second of my conversations with the inventor of a product that is novel and of interest to triathletes. You are all very familiar with the Amias headbands, made popular by many professionals over the past few years at the Ironman World Championships. I wanted to know how this device works to help keep athletes cool in hot conditions, so I reached out to Gustavo Cadena, a materials and energy engineer who developed the graphite cubes that are the heart of the device's advertised cooling ability to learn more. We talk about how it works, and I'll give you my own personal insight from having used it, and that's coming up later on. Before all of that, of course, I want to take a moment to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program, and in doing so, get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month or so. Those episodes are available on a private feed just for my subscribers. Plus, for North American subscribers who sign up at the $10 per month level of support, they receive a special thank you gift in the form of a BOCO TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access to the bonus episodes and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, I thank you in advance just for considering. It's time again for the medical mailbag, that segment of the program, when I'm joined by Juliet Hockman, who is coming to us from across the pond this week. Juliet, how was your flight to London?
2: It was fine. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm just glad we could find a time that worked for both of us so we could do this.
1: Yes. And uh, despite the jet lag, I I know we've got a bit of a complicated subject that came to us from a listener. So why don't we get right to it and uh, we will try and untangle it. So what's the question that we have to answer for our listeners today?
2: Yeah, this is a good one. So this came to us from one of our listeners, who's also actually one of our life sport athletes. And he had been hearing from his peer group where he lives actually in Southeast Asia about this Supplement called NR Plus and how NR Plus had this ability to restore musculoskeletal health. And of course, as an endurance athlete, that's particularly interesting to us, particularly and even more so as we age. And so he asked us to dig into this a little bit and see if these claims were true. So tell us a little bit about what NR Plus is and all these associated acronyms that we were talking about right before the show, like NAD Plus or NAD. So dig, dig in a little here, Jeff.
1: Yeah, so I went down a rabbit hole on this one, and it was an interesting rabbit hole, but it is a little bit complex and complicated. So I'm going to count on you to keep me on the straight and narrow and and help untangle things for our listeners. So let's just begin first and foremost with what NR Plus is. So NR Plus basically stands for nicotinamide riboside, which is a form of vitamin B3. And the reason that this supplement is being promoted is because I'm just going to refer to it as NR because nicotinamide riboside. Side is kind of a, a mouthful. <laughs> NR is also known colloquially as reversatrol, And I'm going to come back to reversatrol later because it's important. But NR is being promoted because when it is ingested, it is a precursor for a very important coenzyme called nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide or NAD. (laughs) I know, I know it's going to get confusing. So we're going to keep the acronyms. We're just going to use the acronyms. So if you take NR, it gets converted in your body to NAD. And NAD is a vital coenzyme and a metabolic intermediate, which is very, very important in the breakdown of glucose and is used in a a biochemical process called the Krebs cycle. So I'll just get into the weeds just a little bit here. You will, of course, remember that carbohydrates are our main source of fuel when we're doing endurance sport. And what we're actually doing when we metabolize glucose is we are trying to get the energy out of the bonds that hold carbon carbon atoms and oxygen atoms within the glucose molecule together. Every time we split apart one of those bonds, Our body takes that energy, which comes from breaking a bond, and puts it into the formation of a different bond. So, if you could imagine a a, a little factory in which we take energy, so we take the energy from breaking a bond, and then we convert it into forming a different bond. And the bond that we're forming is taking a phosphate and joining it to adenosine diphosphate to make adenosine triphosphate, or ATP. And I know everybody has heard of ATP because ATP is the fuel that we use to to basically make everything go. Our muscles take that energy in that bond of ATP and then break it from ATP back to ADP and a phosphate, and then that makes our muscles contract, and everything is predicated on having enough ATP.
2: Okay, So, so to summarize that, and make sure I've got this straight. So NR plus is what we can ingest and is converted to NAD. And NAD is really important to break down glucose. And we need to break down the glucose to create ATP, which is energy.
1: Correct. That got is it. the source okay. of that is the form of energy that we use to fuel and to, to make everything go to make our muscles work. So okay, we're, we're, we're on track now. Great. Now, Normally when we do this, NAD plus gains an electron and becomes NADH. It becomes reduced, chemically speaking, to become NADH. We have processes in our body that then remove that electron to make to restore NADH back to NAD plus. But there are situations, including as we age, where the processes that restore NAD plus become not quite as efficient. And so scientists and chemists have theorized for some time that if we could augment the body's stores of NAD+, we could augment the efficiency of Gluc- uh, glu- glucose breakdown, augment ATP formation, and enhance the biochemistry necessary in order to have enough ATP and en- enhance muscular function. It also turns out that there are receptors for NAD found within skeletal muscle. And other researchers have suggested that just by providing higher levels of NAD+, you will stimulate these receptors that will cause some downstream effects that actually make skeletal muscle work better, regardless of all these other biochemical things. So supplementing with NR creates more NAD+, which has two effects according to the theories. Number one, it will stimulate skeletal muscle to be more efficient and and better- and then the second thing it will do is it will provide a higher or uh, a better reservoir of NAD plus to make the metabolic processes of glucose breakdown and ATP formation more efficient as well. So it's a two-fold theory. And there has been research in animals, a fair amount of it, that has, has gone to look at whether or not this actually happens and whether or not this actually works. Now, you might be wondering, why don't we just take NAD plus in some form? Well, it turns out you can't. There's no way to actually take nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It would just get broken down in our stomach or by our liver. So you have to take this NR as the precursor and then let it get formed into what we need. So that's that again is this form of vitamin B3. So there was this a nice review paper in 2022, just last year, that was called NAD Plus Therapeutics and Skeletal Muscle Adaptation to Exercise in Humans. And basically it reviewed a lot of the research that has been done to this point at supplementing NAD plus precursors, because there's two of them. There's the the more popular one, which is NR, but then there's another form of vitamin B3 that can also be given. It doesn't matter which one you give. The studies are pretty similar in terms of what they find. And they give these things in fairly large quantities, anywhere from 100 to 300 milligrams per kilogram per day. So that's a very large amount Mm, of a substance to be giving. And the reason they have to give so much is because this stuff doesn't have a very high bioavailability. So what is bioavailability? Bioavailability refers to when you take a substance, how much of it actually gets to where it needs to get in order to be active. So when we take a drug like Tylenol, uh, acetaminophen, paracetamol, depending on where you are in the world. When you take acetaminophen, it has a pretty substantial, around 40 to 50% first-pass metabolism. What that means is it gets into your stomach, it gets into your duodenum, it gets absorbed, it has to pass through the liver. And as it passes through the liver, almost immediately, 50% of the drug is being metabolized and being rendered inactive. So when you take that 500-milligram tablet Only 250 milligrams of the drug is actually getting into your bloodstream and going to be active when it gets to the cells in order to help with your pain or your fever or whatever it is. Well, when you take NR, when you take this reversatrol, 1% is bioavailable. (laughs) So Wow, that's you, a low yeah,
2: hit rate. <laughs> it is a
1: very low rate. So that's right. why they have to give such huge amounts. When you're giving 100 to 300 milligrams per kilogram per day, which you're actually giving is 1 to 3 milligrams per kilogram per day, that's bioavailable.
2: Got it. <clears throat> okay.
1: All right. So what they did, a lot of these studies are animal-based. So they gave mice in one study 12 months ongoing 100 to 300 milligrams in different dose formings per kilogram per day of these precursors. And what they found is that indeed, the mice who were getting higher amounts of this stuff actually showed an increased ability to perform exercise. They didn't say exactly what the exercise was. I assume it's back to our little mice treadmills. And they then went on and tried to see if the same thing happened in humans. And it turns out that in humans doesn't work. So, when they gave humans as much as 1,200 milligrams per day, they did not see any changes in measurable performance. And the difference between mice and humans, they postulate Maybe because of this very low bioavailability, because remember, if you're giving 1,200 milligrams per day, you're giving basically 12 milligrams, and that's nowhere close to the amount that you're giving to the mice, where you're giving them, you know, three milligrams. As a percentage per of body weight. Yeah, it's a, as a percentage of body weight, it's nowhere close to the same. So you may not be giving anywhere close to the dose needed. But the other big thing was, is the researchers have suggested that in mice, there may be more of an NAD plus deficiency state. And we're addressing that when we give them these precursors. And in humans, it's not clear that this deficiency state really exists. That's a theoretical thing. There have been some observational studies where in obese patients or in older patients, I'm talking older than the age of 70, we start to see this NAD plus deficiency. But other studies, not so clear. And in fact, a paper in a different journal looked at whether or not there is NAD plus deficiency. And it turns out that when you put people through very high level of exercise, putting them at like 100% or even more than 100% of maximal uh, oxygen uptake, well, the NAD plus to NADH ratio doesn't really change. It stays about the same. And the reason for that is because our metabolic processes are so well Designed and and so efficient to be able to restore the NADH to NAD plus, so there doesn't seem to be this deficit in humans that would result in a need to supplement so much. So that's that's one of the reasons why. The other thing is is this whole thing with the skeletal muscle uh, signaling that uh, was this other theory. There seems to be some biochemical changes. And many of the studies that we found, and we looked at several studies in older patients and younger patients, in older patients, there seem to be, when you supplement with some of this stuff, you definitely seem to get changes in inflammatory markers. So you'll get decreasing interleukins, decreasing different cytokines. You'll even get certain decreasing markers in what you would expect would result in kind of exercise performance. You can get changes in ventilatory threshold, for example, Uh, athletes or older people are able to take higher, uh, you know, somewhat larger amounts of of breaths at at a higher uh, amount of uh, exertion, but it's not translating into performance benefits in any measurable fashion. VO2 max doesn't change. There's no evidence of any increased power or speed or anything. And, Researchers have been, frankly, a little bit mystified as to why that is, because they're mm-hmm. seeing biochemical changes that they think should result in performance change, but there hasn't been any performance change. And so it's a little bit unclear why that is. So this this is kind of an interesting question for me, because biochemically, some of this stuff makes sense, but we're not seeing it pan out. And it's kind of interesting. And I think it might be just one of those things where, well, you know, (laughs) you know, the biochemistry and physiology is predicting something, but the reality is, is that it's not panning out, or we just might not have been able to uh, deliver this stuff in a way that's going to show a difference, or we just might not have done the right study. It's not clear.
2: Yeah, I was going to say maybe it's it's so uh, maybe. Well, maybe it doesn't work. Maybe there's we can't get enough into a human body because they're so much bigger than mice, and maybe we're just not testing for the right things. So yeah. a lot a lot of kind of unknowns. It sounds like. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. There was yeah. there was one study that I think is worth mentioning as well, where this stuff was actually shown to not do uh, such a good thing. This was a study that used NR. To and it was kind of an ethically questionable study. This yeah. was a study in 2016. I'm not sure where it came out of, but I I I don't know how they got this past the research board. They basically they they took rats, they they had a group that they supplemented, a group that they didn't, and then they made them swim with like a with with like a weight attached to their tails. <laughs> and they Sorry. like failure in this test meant they were Dragged under the water and didn't come right. up for ten seconds. I mean, it's like it sounds like drow- like literally drowning rats drowning or rats. waterboarding rats. I and I mean, know. rats aren't the most sympathetic characters, but still, it sounds a little <laughs> like questionable. Anyways, yeah. this paper showed pretty clearly that supplementing with NR, while it did increase NAD plus, uh, sorry, it didn't actually show any increase in NAD plus in their muscle at all. It did show some increase in NAD plus in their bloodstream. But the rats who were in the NR supplementation group actually had worse performance in this drowning test. So well, maybe because the
2: word was out that they were all going to drown.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's not, it really sounded like an awful study. But I mean, you know, you could, <laughs> I, I, right. yeah. Anyways, so yeah there there are some there are occasional studies, that, and it's it's nice to see a negative study published because it's pretty rare in drug. Studies that you'll see negative studies published, and this was one that was published, so that was good. Okay. But I, I, All I right, do so want to now start, take us yeah,
2: take us back to reversatrol because we started yeah. with that. Yeah, yeah, so and just, I and I want to talk we, about we, that. We back.
1: I want to talk about that because reversatrol. I got kind of hung up on the website for where Andrew pointed me to this particular supplement because the the web page promised some pretty amazing, remarkable stuff, including, hang on, I'm going to pull it up here because it was really great stuff. So ReverseTrol. this is from, directly from the manufacturer's website. Reversatrol is a well-known longevity and anti-aging supplement. And I found myself going, I, I don't know about it. <laughs> <laughs> it talks about how it benefits... Uh, insulin sensitivity supports a healthy inflammatory response, has been shown to be involved in improving cardiovascular health. I mean, all kinds of wonderful things. And they, to their credit, list a lot of references. And a lot of these references are actually in published medical literature. Many of them are theoretical. So many of them are laboratory studies. Many of them are population studies. They're not randomized control trials. So not really the best kind of science, but still science-based. So I wanted to dig a little bit into this. And one of the best papers I found from the website is a really, really nice clinical summary of Reversitrol. And everybody will now be familiar with Reversitrol when I just read directly from this paper. During the early 1990s, the moderate red wine intake of the French population was found to correlate with the decreased incidence of heart disease and obesity, which appeared to contradict their relatively high-fat diet. This relationship was termed the French paradox and was initially attributed solely to the presence of Reversitrol in red wine. So Reversitrol, it turns out, is the goodness within French wine that has been associated with all of the health benefits of this French paradox, the so-called French paradox. And so I started digging into it a little bit, and this review paper was really, really insightful. Basically showed a lot of associations, no great research in terms of, again, no randomized controlled trials of this stuff, but a lot of association of increasing Foods like grapes are the ones that have the highest concentration of reversatrol. That's why red wine has so much. White wine has none. It's because it's all found in the grape skins. So if you're not familiar with how to make red and white wine, red wine includes the grape skins, white wine, the skins are separated out. So white wine does not have reversatrol, Red wine does. So if you drink a lot of red wine, you're getting a lot of reversatrol. You have lower Lower negative outcomes from cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, different cancers, like all kinds of stuff. So it's really, really interesting. And Reversatrol is, again, one of these compounds that has incredible antioxidant properties, incredible uh, anti-inflammatory properties, just like what we saw with tart cherry juice. So yet another food-borne chemical that seems to have a lot of positive effects on health, although nothing that I could find in this instance – for performance.
2: And did I mean I'm a little bit wary of all of this because isn't I, I was just looking up reverse trawl as you were talking, and boy, it is everywhere, you know, everybody's written a paper on it, everybody's talking about it. Everybody's selling the supplement. But isn't this all that we really just want it to be okay for us to have our glass of red wine every night? <laughs> because it has this magical form magical ingredient.
1: It's interesting, right? Because I, I think that I think that that's a part of it. I, I, there's no yeah. doubt in my mind that that's a, we're looking for an excuse to be allowed to do the things that we're told maybe we shouldn't do so much. But <laughs> there's no question like we've I've talked in the past on this podcast about the reverse J curve. So the reverse J curve uh, to remind people shows that as you increase the dose of something, the health benefits increase. And then once you get to a certain tipping point of taking too much of something, then the health benefits start to to decrease. And the one that I talked about specifically was exercise. So if you exercise high intensity for increasing number of hours, your morbidity and mortality from cardiovascular disease goes down until you hit around 10 hours. Once you hit about 10 hours of high intensity exercise per week, then the amount of benefit you get From exercise starts to decrease, but it never comes back to zero. So even if you're training, like I train an average about 14 to 15 hours a week, so I'm not getting as much benefit as somebody who trains nine to 10 hours in terms of my mortality and morbidity benefit, but I'm still getting a significant benefit over somebody who trains no hours. And that's the thing about the reverse J curve that I think people need to remember. It's not that it's dangerous to train more, it's just not as beneficial. Right. Well, alcohol is similar. Alcohol also shows a reverse J curve. If you drink a glass of wine a day, there are definite health benefits associated with that. Now, is it because of reversatrol? Possibly. Oh, I thought that was
2: debunked. I thought that was debunked. I thought that whole. There is
1: well, there is some. St- Listen, I mean, I think it's controversial, right? I don't okay. think it's totally accepted across the board anymore because the more you study it, the more you're going to find. Well, maybe not, right? But yeah, right. there is, there does seem to be some benefits of alcohol to some health metrics not all but cardiovascular health seems to improve with a certain and we're talking alcohol in significant moderation here we're not talking about like drinking a lot and that's the thing with the j-curve for alcohol with alcohol if you drink more than like a small amount per day your j-curve does cross zero so you start Mm -hmm. to get ill effects very very quickly um so that's one that you have to take into consideration but how much is the alcohol itself the issue and how much is reversatrol an issue, and I'm talking here in terms of the benefits. Don't know, don't know. Right. It's uh, it's not totally clear. And I agree with you. I think that once people latched on to reversatrol, it was it became kind of a self fulfilling prophecy where everybody started, you know, oh hey, this is the thing, and and you know, in the paper that I found they were very clear. Reversatrol remains of, of limited benefit because you have to take so much to actually get any of it that's bioavailable. And even with the, the glass of, of wine, how much of it is actually there? Right, right. So not right, clear, right. not clear. So not tra- clear.
2: trace amounts, yeah.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and the supplements, they're not cheap. They're, yeah. they're like $50 for a capsule count of 30. And to get the amounts that we're talking about, anywhere from 600 to 1200 milligrams a day, it works out to like $10 to $13 per day to right. get this stuff in supplement form. So right. for something that has really right now no benefit for endurance sport, no benefit for recovery, and not entirely proven benefits for health- I mean, that's a decision I think people will have to make for themselves. But personally, I, I'm not going to be jumping on board to get this stuff. Right, right. I, I will, however, continue to have a glass of wine on occasion.
2: <laughs> as one should, as one should. Well, that's super interesting. So basically, the net net, I mean, it's interesting to hear how all of these different compounds, I guess it might be the right word, uh, play an effect on each other. It, it always boggles me that I mean, it's complicated, right? I mean, it's just... Uh, it's really interesting, but it's also co- sort of complicated how, you know, we sort of think, oh, you take a gel, it turns into energy. <laughs> you know, it right. makes you go faster. It makes you yeah. go longer. So that was super interesting. Thank you. But it sounds like the net net of this is mm, maybe save your money and spend it on something else.
1: Oh, absolutely. I would not yeah. recommend spending anything on this right now. It's it's too expensive. It's not. There's not nearly enough compelling science to suggest that it does anything close to what the claims are. And you can get it in other ways. I mean, right. you can get it in foods, you can get it in, and the bioavailability is going to be exactly the same. This product, the NR, you know, I said it's NR plus, the plus they're suggesting that they have combined it with something else that makes it more bioavailable, but they don't have any studies to suggest that that's actually true. So, and there are, there are other forms of this stuff that, that people are suggesting might be more bioavailable. But until I see evidence that number one, it is more bioavailable and number two, that actually correlates with better outcomes. I'm not ready to say that this is, this is something people should get. So to be continued perhaps in the, in a future episode, but for now, Definitely save your money and spend uh, it it on
2: tart cherry (laughs) juice.
1: Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, Juliet, this has been a good conversation. I'm glad we were able to make it, I think, in a a way that people will be able to digest and understand. Uh And uh, I wish you uh, a great rest of your vacation in London. And I think you said you're going to France as well, right?
2: Yeah, just for a night. Yeah. Just following my, my husband's on a business trip. I'm just sort of just kind of tagging along this time, which is a lot of fun.
1: Awesome. Enjoy. And we will catch up for the next episode as we head into the holiday season. So if you have any specific questions you'd like to send for us to consider, especially if they're Christmas themed or Hanukkah themed, please do send them along. We would love to consider them here on the Medical Mailbag. You can reach me at TRI underscore DOC at iCloud.com, or you could submit them on the private Facebook group for the podcast. Just take a look on Facebook for the TriDoc podcast, answer the three easy questions. I'll grant you admittance. You can join the conversation there or submit your questions. that great conversation as always. We'll see you next time.
2: Thanks so much, Jeff.
1: Longtime listeners of this podcast know that this is not a program that does much in the way of product endorsements or fluff pieces on tech or gadgetry in the multi-sport space. However, if you heard the recent interview with the designer of the Velovetta shoe, then you also know that, like you, I'm an avid triathlete myself. And, like you, I too am always looking for ways to get faster. And, like you, let's face it. I think new technology is very cool, and I have the utmost respect for people who can bring something from concept to reality. And I like to know what's behind the design and whether or not there's any merit to some things versus others. So, like with Delevadera, I am featuring another inventor today. This time of a product that I know you have all seen at some point over the last couple of years and have surely wondered about. This interview should not be considered an endorsement. With that said, I do think this product is really intriguing, and for that reason alone, I thought that it was worthwhile to have Gustavo Cadenia Schlam on today as my guest. Gustavo is a 32-year-old Mexican physics engineer with a master's in energy. He started working on human thermal regulation in college back in 2013, and in 2016, he founded Omnius, working on a smart jacket with Soft Robotics. During the pandemic, he collaborated with an air conditioning manufacturer on a new cooling device using some of Amias' proprietary cooling materials, which allowed the company to survive. Currently, he's in charge of manufacturing, product design, and research and development at Amias, and he remains passionate about adapting humans to a warmer planet. Gustavo, welcome to the Tridoc Podcast.
0: Thank you, Jeff, for for inviting me.
1: All right, Omnius may not be a name that is familiar to everyone, but I know that your product is. So why don't you tell everybody what what exactly is the Omnius?
0: So the Omnius material that we developed, it basically amplifies uh, the surface area of the skin that is below it in order to uh, increase its heat output uh, it does that ba- mainly through uh, evaporation of, of sweat or the water you put on it. So, yeah, it's made of a very conductive material, graphite, and uh, it has a special coating that we developed that makes the hydrophobic graphite hydrophilic, uh, which makes it able to interact with the water, absorb it, like wick the water, and distribute it to all the surface so it can evaporate
1: and keep you cool. So the Ammias, for people who still don't know, is that checkerboard kind of headband that you've seen a lot of pros wearing in many hot races. Most recently, Sam Laidlaw was wearing it when he crossed the finish line in Nice. So you've seen the amius around. You've probably wondered what it was and how it works and what it does. So Gustavo is here to talk about that today. And what he's referring to is what the actual checkerboards are is this highly conductive or at least thermally conductive pro, uh, proprietary thermal product, which is essentially graphite. So, graphite. We, we've heard of graphite being used in a lot of different ways. Uh, graphite essentially a different form of carbon, and we're all familiar with it because we're riding it in our, uh, we're riding on it as part of our bikes. So, graphite is just another form of carbon how else is it used to to conduct thermal energy where else where else can we find graphite being used to do that
0: well graphite uh, this particular form of, of graphite which is graphite foam is used in very weight sensitive uh, applications like for example in aircraft or race cars or yes something that really like needs to cool itself in, in a way but the weight is super important. And uh, graphite allows that because it has a much greater conductivity than alumin- aluminum, for example. And uh, the graphite foam allows us to uh, to reduce the weight even more uh, and increase the surface area of exchange.
1: So the way you described this to me previously when we talked on background for an article that I wrote for Triathlete is you Suggested to me that this was graphite that was kind of folded over onto itself over and over and over again so that it had a very high surface area. Is that did I get that correct?
0: Well, the graphite uh, foam is mainly just like graph graphene sheets, yeah, like stacked together forming a foam. Uh, This foam we laid, we then cut it and shaped it like some bricks, like Lego bricks with some columns to increase the surface area. Just like a heat sink uh, inside a computer or a radiator uh, inside a car, uh, heat transfer or heat dissipation, it's a surface uh, problem. Uh, So it's very dependent on surface area. So if you increase the surface area of exchange with the environment, uh, you can increase the heat dissipation. That's why we have these pillars that increase... that. The, the surface area by five five times compared to just like having the skin uh, below it.
1: Okay. So let's uh, just talk briefly about physiology of heat dissipation, because when we're out there working hard in a hot environment, we're creating a lot of heat internally. Our muscles burn energy in order to propel us forward. A lot of that energy gets wasted as the production of heat. That heat then needs to be removed, Our blood picks up the heat from our muscles and transports it to the skin, which then works as a radiator. Uh, Air that moves across our skin will will suck some of that heat away. That heat dissipation is enhanced by the production of sweat because sweat sitting on the skin as it evaporates takes away even more thermal energy. What Gustavo is saying is that when you put the amnius band onto your forehead, what you're doing is you're putting these graphene pillars which have a very high surface area you're you're applying that to the skin because the graphene conducts thermal energy so well it's taking the the heat away from your skin putting it across all of these graphene pillars so now you have instead of the surface area of your forehead you have the surface area of your forehead magnified thousands of times across these graphene pillars and if you then wet that that graphene you enhance the removal of that energy how many fold tenfold a hundredfold
0: well, it's dependent on the on the surface area, which is five times five the times. surface area of the
1: skin. So okay.
0: five times. So five the times the surface area,
1: and then it's also going to depend on how fast that water can evaporate. So there's going to be a temperature differential between the air and the person and everything else. So there's going to be a lot of different exactly. variables that will be impacted here. But the long and the short of it is, the omnius works by increasing the surface area of the skin that it's applied to, and then leverages the fact that the graphene has been treated so that it can absorb water so that you then evaporate water. So the the Ammius would work on its own without water. It just doesn't work nearly as well than if you wet it, correct?
0: Yeah, well, it depends on the ambient temperature. For example, if your skin is uh, 31 degrees Celsius and the ambient temperature is 20, like the headband could work without evaporation because of the temperature difference. It works via convection. But uh, if you are able to wet it, uh, its coolness is amplified greatly because of, the, of how much energy can water absorb when it converts from liquid to, to gas. It's a huge energy uh, that it can absorb. So we always suggest that you can that you should wet, wet it in every aid station. And the, the thing is that it also increases the efficiency of thread because, you can sweat a lot but if, if you are if the sweat doesn't evaporate from your skin if the sweat just drips out from your body that sweat that you s- spend or do, that you generate is not cooling you it's just going out from your body and you are you're wasting it so if you have something that can absorb that sweat or even you can simulate a higher sweat rate by pouring water on it it can greatly improve uh, the the, limit, the cooling limits that your skin currently has in, in that area. So that's one of the main benefits of the, of the headband. And it dif- differentiates to a textile headband because you could think, oh, okay, a, head- a textile headband can also store some, some of that sweat. But the problem is that uh, textiles are insulators. Like they have very, very low uh, thermal conductivity. So even though the a textile headband could be evaporating water from its surface, that coolness that is generated is not really con- being connected or transferred to your body because, especially if you're wearing a thick uh, headband, uh, there's a lot of fabric between the surface of that headband and, you, you, and your skin. So the evaporation efficiency is not uh, great compared to our material that ha- could have... Thousand times more uh, thermal conductivity than a regular textile.
1: Is the sweat that you produce on your forehead enough to keep it wet? Like, will the the does the headband itself soak up the sweat that you're producing on your forehead and, and bring it forward into the graphene uh, blocks?
0: Yeah, it, so, it soaks the the sweat, uh, but it depends on the condition and your sweat rate. If you are maybe in Kona and you are a heavy sweater and you can produce that amount of sweat Uh, yes Uh, but it's usually not enough because of we because of the high surface area of the and the volume of the graphite Uh, we we recommend that you can that you wet it to keep it fully hydrated so it can work at its maximum cooling capacity
1: now, there's a reason well, it's okay. there's a reason that it's placed on the forehead, and that has to do with Same. the anatomy of the blood flow there. Can you describe why you chose to put it on the forehead?
0: Yeah, well, it first we first tried uh, putting on on a T-shirt uh, on the chest, but it was not ideal because of the different sizes and uh, like when you run, you go sometimes up and down, and you move, so the material was kind of moving. So we joke around and said, ah, we should build a headband uh, to make it easier, right? And then we thought about it and, and we said, hey, like it really makes sense because it's easy to to manufacture. It's, it's just like one size fits most of the people. And uh, then we we did some research and we found out about all the how how the body is already optimizing the forehead to be a, a great heat sink for for the body, a great way to. To dissipate heat like there are some uh, blood vessel structures called arterial venous anastomosis ABBA for short and uh, uh, there are three parts in the body uh, that has this special uh, uh, blood blood vessels which basically creates a bypass between the arteries and, and the venous so it doesn't have to cr- to go through the capillaries in a, in a slow way so that creates like a a bypass. So to increase the blood flow between the arteries and the venous. And by creating these uh, higher blood flow areas, you can release more of the heat, exchange more heat between the environment and the blood. And once you cool the blood, it can go cool to certain important organs like the brain and, all, and others. So there are three main like portals of heat dissipation uh, on the body external ones and which is the the forehead like the the upper part of the face the palm of the the hands and the sole of of your feet so from those three the one that is not moving is the forehead Uh, it's important to be like not moving because it's not ideal to add weight to a moving part Uh, for example when you are running because it creates, it generates, it makes you work harder, right? So, I think uh, the forehead is, is ideal for that because of the of these special blood vessels, and also because there are a lot of thermal receptors uh, there. That once you cool that area, your body also feels cooler or feel can, can feel more th- that type of sensation. And also, it's close, really close to to the brain which is a very heat sensitive um, organ and it's really important uh, for any, any activity. It's also receiving a lot of the of this, um, uh, sun radiation. So if you are able to, to cool it, uh, it could have a great impact. Also, It's also facing forward when you are running, so you can receive a lot of uh, airflow there. And it has the highest rate of, of sweat generation per unit area of the body, so the, the, the body already optimized that region to, to increase heat dissipation. That's why we, we don't have hair in that part of the of the face, because it's like hair would limit evaporation of sweat. So uh, yeah, the, the body already optimized that region. We are just only helping it a little bit more doing that task with an amplified uh, surface area of exchange.
1: Yeah, those arteriovenous anastomoses are really important. Uh, as I wrote in that article a little while back for Triathlete, I talked about how you can pick up ice at an aid station and carry that in your hand and let that melt, and that can have a profound effect on cooling. But having the omnius on your forehead for the duration of an event obviously allows for that cooling to continue on, in an ongoing fashion. And... Um, can allow for it to happen to a certain degree. And that's really what I want to get to next. How much of a degree, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, how much can we expect uh, a benefit in terms of core temperature drop compared to someone who's not using it?
0: So it depends again on, on the ambient conditions since it works uh, via their operation, but um, all the literature, uh, describing face cooling, different protocols of face cooling, it's not shown that, that since it's a very small area compared to the whole body, like, like for example, the forehead is maybe 0.5% of the whole surface area, uh, although it's, it has a great impact in the local cooling since it's cooling a very important organ, which is the brain, Uh, it doesn't have a significant impact in the core temperature. Uh, If we want to have a greater impact in the core temperature, we will need to put more cooling material on the body. But if we are just cooling uh, the forehead, uh, it will just impact, it will have a local impact uh, on the brain. And that will all depend on the the, um, uh, temperature conditions. For example... In Kona I, I checked it yesterday and uh, it had it was like around 29 degrees Celsius 84 degrees Fahrenheit at 65 uh, relative humidity right and that get us to a wet bulb a wet bulb is the temperature that you that um, a temperature sensor will have if it's wet right so uh, the wet bulb at those conditions was to around 24 degrees Celsius which is 75 degrees Fahrenheit So that's the minimum temperature that we could get from an evaporative surface. That temperature is the the one we want to get closer to, but it's not always possible because if you are putting the material on your forehead, it's also receiving the heat from your body and it's warming up. So it's very difficult to get uh, to that temperature. But if you are able to increase the ratio of evaporative surface compared to the heating, like the surface from the body. For example, if you, if you don't have anything, if you only have the, your bare skin, the, the surface area of evaporation is this. the ratio of, of the surface area of evaporation compared to the surface of the skin is one, right? But if you put our material, you have more evaporation, more like the ratio is five. You have five times more evaporative surface area than the skin area. So, you are able to get closer to that temperature. So, in, for example, in Kona, maybe we're not getting to the 75 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, that is the wet bulb temperature, but we could be maybe at 80 Fahrenheit uh, temperature, which would be better than being at the regular temperature of the forehead, which is maybe 80, 88 Fahrenheit, right? So so yeah, it depends. If you're using it in a dry climate with 40, like the same conditions, 84 Fahrenheit, 40 degrees, but 40 percent relative humidity, the watt bulb temperature is 67 Fahrenheit, for example. So maybe the the, the omis material could get get you to maybe 20 Fahrenheit, which will be a great difference compared. Uh, to, no, sorry, it will get you to around 70 Fahrenheit, which is a big difference compared to the 88 Fahrenheit, which is the normal temperature of of the skin. So it depends on the condition. It works better in a dry climate, but it, but still like in humid uh, weather, it worked, it works best than the other alternatives. And uh, we've done some tests to validate that ourselves using a thermal camera measuring how close it gets to the wet bulb. Also, we get we got some tests recently by uh, by some users like that they are just using a temperature gauge and measure the, the skin. For example, one user posted a story. Uh, his name was, uh, is Jay Stevenson. Uh, he he posted a story saying, okay, right now it's 60, 68 degrees Fahrenheit. I didn't know if I should use the headband because it wasn't that warm. But he said like, I could give it a try, and he used, he used the headband and measured uh, his forehead afterwards, after the exercise, and he, w- he was measuring 60, 61 degrees Fahrenheit, which if you compare it with the 88 Fahrenheit of, of the center of the normal skin, it, it's a big difference because of this evaporative um, effect of, of the headband.
1: So, so yeah. So I wanna be clear, you're you're not suggesting that the core temperature is dropping at all. It's really just local effects. And the AMIS has been shown, at least anecdotally, to be very effective in reducing wherever it's applied uh, on the forehead to reducing that skin temperature to around the wet bulb temperature. So it's going to it's gonna be impacted by local humidity and by whatever the ambient temperature is. But the AMIAS is very efficient and very effective in getting the forehead temperature down to whatever the wet bulb temperature would be and allowing for blood passing through that area to be cooled to that same effect. But... Because the forehead represents such a small percentage of skin on our total body, it can't really cool our core to that degree. So if we're not seeing a, a drop in the core temperature, and that's something that we, we are, are ideally looking for, because as we're out there exerting ourselves in Kona or wherever else it happens to be, our core temperature is going up. We know that that's a limiting factor for our ability to, to perform. How then is the EMS benefiting us because you you mentioned a couple of times you said it kind of briefly you said that it's having important local effects especially on the brain how how does that manifest as improved performance
0: uh, b- based on the current literature in face cooling that agrees with that like not decreasing the the core temperature but decreasing the temperature around the the brain uh, it has been shown to increase the, the to decrease the rate of per- perceived exertion, to to increase the time of fatigue, to lower the levels of uh, prolactin levels, which is a an, an hormone like stress hormone. Um, so it has has shown that it decreases that it increases the the performance uh, once you cool a very important organ like the like the brain. Uh, we, uh, we, we haven't done the test of how much is the o- Omnus headband is cooling, apart from the thermal camera images that we've got and the anecdotal data and the pros using it. Uh, since we are a small company, we are, we are not able to pay the pros. So what we do is like we just give free product to them and let them test it and decide for themselves to use it. So we, got, we, see, we, we received a great feedback from them. We still want to do the, the this validation test in in a good way in in, in a lab, but it's, it's kind of costly. We're we're still in we're in talks with some university to get maybe some grant money to co finance these type of studies. This is definitely in our plans because it could be the greatest the greatest way of marketing our product. So that's one of our priorities right now. But we haven't done it uh, ourselves right now. But the the similar tests that that could be found in literature about face cooling showed uh, an increase in performance uh, based on that.
1: Okay, so just to to rephrase then what you've said, is there is evidence out there right now that says if you cool the face, you trick the brain into thinking that it's not exerting, that the body's not exerting itself as hard. You almost trick the brain into thinking that the core temperature is lower, and therefore you you end up with decreased per- perceived exertion, decreased perceived fatigue, and you're able to perform better. And that translates into increased performance. So cooling the face, which the omnius does, has those improved impacts. Now, here's here's a follow-on question. Is there a danger by tricking the brain into thinking that the body is not as warm as it is, is there a danger that you can then overdo it and raise your core temperature too high?
0: It could be the, the case in extreme temperatures, but I don't think that I think since the brain is such a sensitive, um, is one of the most sensitive uh, organs to heat because and if you increase it far like 4 degrees Celsius in, you start increasing, it it starts creating neurochemical and morphological changes in the brain so it's one of the most important things to do, cool, be able to cool the brain so if you are able to do it uh, even though your, your, the rest of your organs are, are still cool, maybe it's not a, a dangerous uh, enough to, to, to do it so it's it's just a, a way of like of improving the way uh, the the body is already working. Like the body is trying to dissipate that heat from the forehead. We are just helping it. And ice helps, right? But sometimes, for example, Craig Craig Heller from Stanford uh, mentioned in uh, the Huberman podcast uh, in 2021, at the end of 2021, that he didn't recommend putting really cold water on the body eh, or or eyes because that those extreme temperatures could cause vasoconstriction and since the the blood vessels are constr con, eh, are reducing its diamet- di- diameter and their diameter blood flow is reduced and heat eh, output is limited so i like based on that a it's more beneficial to have a continuous source of cooling that has maybe not that extreme temperatures as, as ice or very, very cold water, but maybe just like uh, could be a 70 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that. That doesn't cause vasoconstriction constriction, but it's sti- still uh, creating some heat output from, from the body. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I'm like... We're working on, on putting, uh, finding new ways of putting the cooling material in other parts of the body. For example, we in 2019 uh, we gave some athletes uh, the arm coolers. For example, Sebastian Kimble used uh, it, and, and other athletes, and uh, they really like it. And and we will probably launch uh, some kind of uh, this type of product uh, next year because although it, it's. It's not ideal because it's it's moving and in, you have a moving limb. Like adding some weight might not be that great, but uh, maybe the, the cooling effects uh, are, are greater than this uh, excess energy expenditure that you may have because of the weight. And maybe with more the more material on your skin, we can get more results in terms of, of core temperature that could benefit uh, you in general
1: okay my last question has to do with price i I think uh the one reason we haven't seen the omnius taken up more than we have is because when people do research on it they find out how much it costs uh it's marketing i believe north of 300 dollars for the headband right now Uh, is there something you've looked at to try and get that cost down is that something that you're thinking about for the future or is that just unfortunately because this is a very you know, uh, this is a high-tech kind of thing. That's it, just, unfortunately, the, the cost of entry for when you're dealing with something like this.
0: Yeah, we're definitely working on, on that. Right now, the, the headband costs around 200 Oh, I, I apologize.
1: Uh, I, I misstated uh, that. No, I'm sorry.
0: No, no worries. Uh, and, like, with the cap, it adds up $10 more co- compared to that. But, yeah, we are definitely working on that. Uh, the problem is that, it's a very new technology and we still do, don't have the volumes to be able to decrease the the price and it's a very different material and so we are also working with our uh, suppliers to increase their their volume so they can decrease the the, the cost and then we can we can uh, uh, re- reduce our 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 price to, to the market but but yeah since there's no like we are basically creating this new market of graphite foam because it's very like right now it's using very niche applications, so uh, that's why we, we need to increase the volume and uh, grow this market, and then we will be able to 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 reduce the our cost. But yeah, we are definitely looking at it. Uh, it's sometimes hard to to have the margins to be able to have some distribution. Strategy, you know. So we're definitely trying to reduce it and also optimizing our manufacturing process uh, to make it uh, more efficient. Uh, Because the view, the the vision of the company is not just focus on triathletes and and grow our business there. Like we, the vision of the company is trying to adapt humans to um, an increasingly warm warming warming uh, planet so eventually we don't only want to use this in elite athletes or ironman athletes but uh, become good enough and cheap enough to be able to go to other type of applications, for example outdoor workers or or maybe first respondents that are very in contact with the with the heat so we we know that we need to decrease the uh, the price to get to those uh, to those applications to make them possible so so yeah, it's, we start with this market and then we create more volume to be able to, to create new products, like cheaper products for, for, for the rest of the, the applications.
1: Well, it's a very reasonable response, and uh, I can totally understand how you have to scale up sometimes in order to be able to get those prices down. And uh, I will uh, be watching for that to happen, and excitedly, because it's a really exciting product and something that, as you mentioned, with a warming planet, more than triathletes are going to be in need of. Gustavo Cadenia Schlamm, I can't thank you enough for being here on the podcast today to discuss the Omnius headband and the future of a really interesting product. Thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc Podcast today.
0: Thank you, Jeff. It was really nice speaking with you.
1: All right. You've heard the interview with Gustavo, the inventor of the Amias headband. And I wanted to just add a couple of notes. First, I heard from one listener who asked that uh, I not do these kinds of segments. They felt that uh, they appreciated the normal kind of segments that I do where I uh, don't have any kind of Advertising or promotion of different kinds of products and I very much respect that opinion. I did hear from several others, however, who liked the segment that I did with Ed O'Malley, the inventor of the Velo Veta bicycle shoe. So what do you think? I'd like to hear from you Is an interview like this with Gustavo, the inventor of the Omnius, Is that something useful to you or do you feel like it is too much of a promotion of a product and not something that you'd like to see repeated on this podcast? I am here to do a program that is really something that I want to best serve my listeners. And so I very much value your feedback. Let me know. Send me an email, tri underscore doc at iCloud.com or leave a comment in the Facebook group for the podcast. The other thing I wanted to say is that I myself did purchase an Omnius headband just about a couple of months ago. I hadn't really had a chance to use it until recently. I was in Little Cayman on a family vacation and planning to do some training while I was there, and I figured that would be as good a place as any to try and utilize this product and see how it worked. Now, as you heard in the interview, the product is really best suited for warmer or hot environments where it's not quite humid and Little Cayman is a very humid environment. I did run a couple of times using the headband and I have the full hat as well as the the, the integrated into the headband because I don't have hair and I need to protect my scalp from the sun. So I uh, wore it a couple of different times. On one particular day, the temperature was a little bit lower than the other day that I wore it, but the humidity was similar on both days and that is to say it was quite high. I found the headband interesting. It definitely feels very cool to the touch. Spraying water on it repeatedly seems to accentuate the cooling feeling on the forehead. I didn't necessarily feel like it made me feel any cooler. I don't necessarily know that it changed my perception of my exertion. But it's hard to say. I only used it a couple of different times. I will reserve judgment overall. I will say that on the day that I used it when it wasn't quite as hot, I thought that it worked a little bit better in terms of making me feel as though I could exert myself a little bit more. So I ran 10 kilometers on that particular day. I kept myself hydrated. I was keeping the device moist and I definitely felt like I could exert myself without feeling like I was overheating. The second day that I I wore it, I was planning on running a longer run, about 10 miles, and I was simply unable to. The temperature was just way too hot. Anyways, uh, I'm going to reserve judgment on it. I I think that uh, it's an interesting product and we'll see. Next year when I uh, race in Boulder, when I know it will be warm and definitely very dry, that will be an opportunity to try it again and see if it helps. I've heard from other people who used it in Kona this year, uh, some women who were racing with it in the heat and humidity of the Big Island. They too felt like it was interesting, not sure that it really helped them, and also came away with a sort of a neutral feeling on it. How about you? Have you used this device? Do you find it to be helpful? Let me know. Send me an email. Put a comment in the Facebook group. Be very interested in hearing. That's all I've got for you this time. I hope that on uh, the whole, you enjoyed the show and we'll talk to you again on the next episode.